Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to look at one of the most vulnerable and probably most popular methods of authentication, passwords. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and, and make sure you subscribe so you always get the latest updates. Now, if you've been to any information security awareness training in the last 20 years, then you probably have heard about password security. You know, don't write passwords down, use complex passwords, make it harder to guess. Complex passwords are too hard to remember, so use passphrases, yada, 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 right? Some trainers get witty and use humor, such as like, well, passwords are like underwear. You should change them regularly and never share them with anyone else. Well, with all this discussion, our episode today hopes to teach you some new things about password security and authentication and how to go beyond that basic understanding. Specifically, we're going to discuss why do we need passwords, ways that consumers can log in and authenticate, how bad actors attack passwords, and then the future of passwords with conditional access policies. So let's start out with passwords. NIST Special Publication 863-3 defines passwords as a string of characters, letters, numbers, and other symbols used to authenticate an identity or to verify access authorization. Now, these passwords or memorized secrets are used to promote confidentiality. Thus, data is protected from unauthorized viewers because they don't know the password to get in. Now, one of the subtle things that's different about information compared to the physical world is that when information is stolen, you still have the original. And unless someone triggers an alert or alarm, you might not know your information is stolen until it's misused. For example, let's say you're at home with your teenager in the room and you log into your laptop. If you type with a hunt and peck style and your kid watching you, you can now know what your username is and password. And since both you and your teenager can log in with the same credentials, the computer doesn't know which human's logged in. See, passwords only validate the credential, not the human. This is very different from physical theft. If instead your teenager takes your dinner in the fridge and eats it, it's a high likelihood you notice it's been compromised because, well, you don't have it anymore. So the big thing to notice here is it's kind of hard to tell when information is stolen. Now, the biggest thing you need here is some sort of activity log to detect a type of exfiltration. Okay, so that's kind of it for basics on passwords and things like that. And in fact, it's rather interesting as we get forward, we'll look at some of these NIST guidance that have moved away from what we've always done for a while. Bill Burr, many years ago, uh, had worked at NIST, and he's a guy who kind of came up with the uppercase, lowercase number, special characters change every 30 days. And he recanted on that. There is an article you can look if you just Google the man who put us through password hell. You will find that link as it says, you know, this was really kind of based on an outdated model. So back in the time when I was getting my computer science degree, I was working on PDP-8s and PDP-11s. And it turned out that if you took one of those computers and you had eight characters of uppercase, lowercase, numbers, special characters, and all those permutations that you would go through, it would turn out, well, how many keyboards on, uh, characters on the keyboard? Like 96? So 96 to the eighth power. It would take about 60 days at that computing speed to try them all. So at the halfway point is where you're statistically likely to get a 50% probability is when you reset it. And we haven't changed that for over 40 years. So this is why NIST in their latest iteration said, we don't recommend that you change your password regularly. Set a good, strong password and then move 
farther down to things like multi-factor authentication, which we'll get into. And Microsoft says the same thing. If you go to into Azure and you set up your configurations for password, is their recommended setting is not to keep changing the passwords. Why? Because people take their old password and put a one after it or a two or a character or something like that. And it really doesn't help. And they found out that the best way you can do it is to make sure that you have other ways to prove your identity. So let's go a little bit deeper. Historically, passwords are used to what? Log into things. The user creates a password. It gets stored on a device. It's checked every time the user wants to log in. So what are some of the ways that hackers have been able to overcome this control? Well, I should probably say crackers because you know I consider myself a hacker and I don't do bad things unless I have permission, of course. The first is password guessing. A lot of users struggle to remember complex passwords, so they take the easy way out and use passwords that are easy to remember. Now, I remember back in the day, this is back in the early 2000s, even back in the 90s, uh, it's common for sites that didn't require users to have passwords consisting of complex upper, lower characters, etc. And I remember when we do the password guessing, about every November you'd find somebody who had the password turkey and then December Xmas, and then Easter, or Bunny, or Spring. And if you ever had one of those passwords, don't feel bad. You had a lot of company back in the day. And so what happened then is that users would also pick their favorite pets, or their sports teams, or something combination. We'd walk into an office, and we'd look around at the posters on the wall. Hey, there's one that says this particular team, or this, and we'd try that. And sometimes it works. And so therefore, these types of selections create a big problem because bad actors can guess these common passwords by using a dictionary attack. They can test every word that appears in a dictionary under a certain number of characters. Now, you know, it doesn't have to be an English dictionary. I remember we guessed a password that was a Klingon word. The, the user was a Trekkie, and we ran his password hash against a Klingon dictionary. Well, that's my best Klingon for. He didn't expect that. Anyway, dictionary attacks became really popular after a company called RockU developed widgets for MySpace, <laughs> it's going back a ways, experienced a large-scale data breach and resulted in the exposure of over 32 million user account passwords. Now, this allowed researchers, as well as bad guys, if you will, to uh, access a large password list where they could perform data analysis, find the most popular passwords. And after analyzing all this data, the researchers found the most popular password was password. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six was used on 290,000 accounts out of the 32 million. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Can you guess the next one? Yeah, <laughs> nine. We're the second and third most popular passwords. I don't know where exactly the word password came in there, but so a stack attacks, we'll start doing with that one because if you've got a single digit or sometimes even a double digit percentage probability of trying some likely passwords to get in through password guessing, that's the path of least resistance. And I've seen similar research on four digit pins where some of the most popular ones, I think the top 10 out of 10,000, compromise well over 20% of the user space, meaning that attackers in general can probably get in there if they're lucky. Now, if you do these, you can break into sites like emails and bank accounts and things like that. Now, after attackers are using password lists and common words, we can evolve our cybersecurity guidance. 
and it required longer passwords. And that's where the symbols and numbers and upper and lowercase characters came from. And you'd think that this would stop these attacks. Well, not really, because attackers would still find ways to steal passwords from users. Now, one of the ways I remember included a keystroke logger. And it was an inline device that would go between the keyboard and the computer, and it would record every keystroke. But because they're plugged in at the back of the PC, usually like the old PS2 connectors, little round ones, although they had USB ones in the later days, the user would never notice that. Who goes in the back of their PC, particularly if it's under a desk? And they could score thousands of keystrokes and maybe retrieved at a later time. Now, how do you sift through all that noise? Well, look for the sequence Control-Alt-Delete. That's usually used to unlock a Windows laptop or desktop, and then it's often be followed by a username and a password. Keyloggers also allowed attackers the ability to steal credentials, but here they needed physical access. And as a result, it required some different approach. Now, in some cities, they found out that the trash collecting companies, the janitorial services, were kind of a hotbed for illegal activity. Now, if you saw an employee walk into the executive's corner office unattended and go poking around under the desk, you'd probably do something about it. But every night, that's where the cleaning crew goes into the corner office. And you can imagine a scenario where someone says, hey, when you go clean that corner office tonight, put this little USB in that computer, hit the on button, do all the stuff you normally do. And when you're done, pull it out, turn it off, throw it at the bottom of the dumpster. And when you wheel it out, and oh, by the way, here's a hundred bucks cash for your time. Sure, why not? That's great money. And these companies have huge turnovers. And so that would be a way to exfiltrate things. And then later on, the, uh, they got to the point where they could be rescored, installed remotely like software, and then capture credentials. Now, another way attacks work is by phishing. And we see a lot of that. Uh, simple forms that look like a website to trick users to enter their credentials. See a lot of these, the redirect. It looks like you're logging into Microsoft, but you're not. Uh, but this started really out when you could do cross-site scripting. A lot of websites back in the 90s would have forums. You could chat with like-minded people about your hobbies and your interests, and you could upload anything, pictures, text, even JavaScript. And so an attacker could submit a piece of JavaScript code that looks like a request to re-log in. So the next person who visits the forum thinks, hey, I better type in my username and password to see the page. And bam, they just had the, became the victim of password theft. Now, if we go back to the RockU data breach, one of the big lessons learned is to encrypt your stored passwords. I mean, if passwords are stored as hashes instead of clear text passwords, it makes it harder for someone to figure out what the password is. As most of you probably know, a hash is a one-way algorithm where it takes an arbitrarily large or small input, any size, and then runs it through the algorithm and you get a fixed-length output. It's either 128 bits or 160 or 256, whatever hash algorithm you choose. And it has three characteristics. Number one is, of course, they said arbitrarily large input, and then you could have the fixed length output. The second one is it should be impossible to reverse the calculation. Why? Because it's a lossy algorithm. You lose fidelity. It's a little bit like putting something into a... Uh, a fireplace. You burn the log and then there's nothing left but ash. You can't get the log back. But you can tell if you burnt the same type of log, you get the same type of ash. But the other one is, is that it should be computationally infeasible to come up with two different inputs that result in the exact same output. Because your sample space of inputs, although you can have any arbitrarily large thing, 
If your hash is 128 bits long, your odds of finding that are one and two to the 128th power. And as we now go to things like SHA-256, one and two to the 256th power. And now if we get up to 3,072-bit hashes like SHA-3 and things like that, we're really beyond the computational capability of humans at this point in time, and maybe for the next several decades, to come up with that many combinations. Well, then how do you check a hash if you can't undo it? You just take the user's input, hash that password, and then compare the hashes. Because no two inputs that are different will ever hash to the same thing, statistically. Then if the hashes match, the passwords match. There you go. And now you said, hey, nobody can figure out what our passwords are. And we started out with MD5, Message Digest 5. That was 128-bit SHA Secure Hash Algorithm 1. It was 160 bits. And those are the standards. However, both of those have been deprecated in recent years because there have been effective hash collision attacks demonstrated. And that means that researchers, usually universities, with a lot of computer time that they're not paying for, have in very limited circumstances been able to produce two inputs that come up with the exact same output. And therefore, there's a hash collision. And you could argue that, hey, it's no longer secure. Now, to do so required a fantastic amount of computing time, and it would have to be done every single time for any single hash. So there's, what, two to the 160 power possible hashes. That's an awful lot of things to try. But by finding little weaknesses in the algorithm, they could cut corners and bring that down several orders of magnitude. Now, what if you're on like a government computer where all you have is MD5 and SHA-1? Hash them both. Nobody's come up with a collision that both matches the 128-bit MD5 and the 160-bit SHA-1. Or just go to a SHA-256 and, and be done with it. So what happens is the attack involves stealing these hashed password files in the Windows SAM file. That's a security account manager. Or the Linux Etsy shadow file. And then there's tools like John the Ripper that will run password lists and try to crack the hash. Now, if your password's really complex, then something like John the Ripper won't be able to crack it. But if you named your password, like password one bang, well, you're in for a bad day. Now, additionally, password cracking got more complex. One of the interesting things was, is the beginning of the use of rainbow tables. Now, these were based on Philippe Eschen's work of making a trade-off between time and memory. Instead of waiting for a password cracker to try every possible password, now, in advance, you can calculate hashes of every possible combination. Now, if you go to project-rainbowcrack.com, they have dozens of tables that are already calculated. Some of these are as large as 690 gigs apiece. Now, that would be the one through nine character mixed alpha and numeric rainbow tables. Now, that's huge. Now, if you wanted to download those things, and it would just take months, probably, depending on your bandwidth and, of course, <laughs> the bandwidth of their server. But if you go to DEF CON, at least the last couple of years, they had set up the Data Duplication Village. And you bring in, I think it was four, eight terabyte drives. I'm trying to remember what the size requirement were. But it was just like dropping off your dry cleaning. You get there early, you drop off the drives, and they had these huge arrays, and they would duplicate every rainbow table available every hacker talk that was ever given at DEF CON and all the major things, and you'd even get the uh, big mainframe printout of Snoopy or something. It was just, it would take about uh, two days for them to 
create all this data, but then you come by and you pick it up. Now, that's great for security researchers, red teamers, et cetera. I'm not advocating that if you're going to break the law, but that's a good way to go ahead and get it. But bring your drives and buy them early because in Vegas, every single hard drive of that capacity was sold out at DEF CON a couple of years ago when they were at full strength. Now, last year, sort of pandemic, there are a lot fewer people. We'll see what happens, but that's one way you could do that. Now, you could also write your own rainbow tables uh, if you don't trust these things from somebody else, or if you suspect that there may be some partial knowledge, like you happen to know that the first three characters of, an, of a password is this, 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 but you didn't get the rest. Uh, you could build your own and you could rent Amazon Web Services, spin up instances with a lot of GPUs and crack passwords and tools like Hashicat or go ahead and build up your rainbow tables. Now, the thing about the rainbow table is once it's built, it works really well in that now, especially if you can sort that many things, it's just a lookup function. Back in the old days, in the NT Landman version one, we might have heard of something called Loft Crack. It was put together by the Loft, Loft Heavy Industries up in the Boston area. And what they found out is that Microsoft, when they were storing their hashes, and this is back in the day of Windows NT, Windows 2000, uh, Windows Millennium Edition, and things like that, and even in the early days of XP, is they would only store the four, first 14 characters of your password. Everything else was pretty much ignored. And to make it more interesting, they would hash it in two seven-character chunks, which meant you really had two seven-character passwords. So if you thought you were smart and you had an eight-character password, you really had a seven and a one. Well, what Loftcrack would do is you could enumerate every single one of those combinations and then be able to pop any password like that. And so what happens is, even if those you remember on your XP boxes, if you tried to put in a password over 14 characters, it would give you a warning saying, your password may no longer be compatible with an older version of Microsoft. Well, you don't want that compatibility because basically what it was doing is it was storing the older NT Landman breakable version with a more secure, like NT Landman version two. All right. And that uses salting and some other things like that, which I'll get to in a moment. But the whole idea was imagine if you had a stored secret and one copy of the secret a formula of Coca-Cola you locked in a safe and the other one you put under the floor mat in front of the house. It's the same secret. Why would you do that? And so as a result, that's why length became rather important. You didn't want to do that, but it also kind of got uh, the loft onto the map. And it's interesting because you follow through what some of these folks have done. And Peter Zatko has done some really amazing contributions over the long haul, uh, working at DARPA for three years and the like. And I remember having lunch with him over at DEF CON a few years ago. And he had just finishing up his quote unquote tour of duty there for which I think he was awarded some very high a civilian award for uh, superior service or merit, which is really cool. And he was telling me, he said, gee, Mark, I got an offer from Google. They wanted me to come out to California. I said, there's no amount of money that would ever make me want to move to California. He said, you know what? <laughs> I was wrong. So he's continued to add some great uh, contributions and going forward. So what do we learn about this? We find out then is that if you're going to go ahead and attack a password, you can just do a brute force, which is basically trying every possible combination. But it turns out that you can calculate that. You know the number of characters, and then you raise it to the power, the exponent of the uh, 
at first I say the number of combinations you can use, like just letters, letters, uppercase, lower, letters, uppercase, lower, numbers, special symbols, etc., and then raise that to the power of the number of characters, and that's your search space. You then go ahead and take the, the logarithm base two, and then you know how many bits you've got to search through, and you can calculate it. And so, for example, a, a 10-character numbers only, you know, you're going to break that instantly. But if it were numbers, uppercase, lowercase, no letters and symbols, and you try to run that on, let's say, uh, an average PC or a cloud instance, it might take you a few months to get through them. And so what we find then is if you look at the math, which do you get bigger? Do you get bigger by raising the exponent or do you get bigger by raising the base? Well, what do I mean by that? Okay, let's take two squared, all right? And so I say, all right, do I do, if I go three squared, that's nine, four squared is 16, 25, 36, 49, 64, 81, 100, all right? So I've just gone from 1 to 10, starting with 2. I get all the way up to 100 by increasing the number of characters. But what if I only had these two bits, 0 and 1? 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024. I've just gone instead of 100 to 1,000. And by having longer passwords, particularly if you have a good amount of key space, it just becomes computationally infeasible to try them all. Now, there is a workaround all this, even with a short shorter password. And that involves using things that aren't on the keyboard. So years ago, I remember my son, who's now a pen tester and does quite well at that. He was, I think, back in high school, and there was something I needed on the family computer. And I called him up and I said, hey, I need your password to get something. And he said, okay, it's this, 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 and like Alt-247. He was using an extended ASCII character in his password. It says, brilliant, you're going to do really well in this career because nobody's rainbow tables and usually nobody's brute force attempts ever try those. So if you really have a system you want to keep secure, consider one of those extended ASCII characters. But of course, that's still just sticking in the password only. And as you'll see, we could do a whole lot more. Now, to get around the password hashes and these rainbow tables are, are tough, so you could replay your login authentication. Sometimes you can replay these password hashes in Linux and Windows. It's called pass the hash. And it kicks off pretty well if you can grab that hash, which is then considered to say, hey, you've already hashed the correct value. There's only one thing that would ever hash to that exact value, so you must have put the right password in. And Benjamin Delpe's Mimikatz has become very popular now for a tool. It's basically a way to scrape memory, pull that password out of memory or a hash password, and then replay it someplace else. And uh, we did a CISO Tradecraft episode back on the 27th of December. It was called Active Directory is Active with Attacks. And we've got a lot of information on that. And we'll put the link in the show notes as well. But uh, yeah, some interesting uh, reasons why he ended up releasing that from the way the story goes, as I had read it, is that he was demonstrating how this thing could work at a security conference. And then he was accosted by a rather unpleasant looking person, uh, very large, saying, you will give me your code now. And it's like, OK, I can't fight him. And then after that, he just released it to everybody. He said, well, if the bad guy's going to have it. Everybody can have it. And it's been a very popular tool with red teaming now. What can you learn about the fact that an admin password can be pulled out of memory from any of your endpoints? What's your defense? 
you've got to have a different administrator password on every single one of your devices. I know it's a hassle. It's easy to put the same one everywhere, but that's a requirement I have as a CISO. Every one of our devices has a separate generated password, big long one using a password generator, upper, lower, number, special characters that we keep stored in a secure location, not in an Excel spreadsheet labeled administrator passwords. Thank you very much. And that's one of the keys to making sure that even if somebody gets a toehold into your network, they don't get an entire foothold and they're really limited in their ability to do lateral movement. Remember, if you got an admin password that works on all your machines, pretty much game over. All right, all you CISO Tradecraft listeners out there, it's starting sounding like these bad actors who can get the upper hand here. Now, what has the industry done in response to keeping passwords and password hash attacks at bay? Well, the biggest solution is multi-factor authentication or MFA. And with multi-factor authentication, in addition to a password, you use something else. What do we mean by authentication factor? There's four types of authentication factors. Something I know, that's a password. Something I have, like a token, a car key, front door key. Something I am, biometrics, fingerprint, face recognition. And the last one, which has really become viable in the last 15 years, is some place I am. If you look at a lot of the apps that are used for banking, they request access to your location. And if you deny them access, they might not let you open up your bank account. Why? Because if they see that you're at home or in a normal location in your home country, yeah, no big deal. But if all of a sudden there's an attempt to log into your account from some country over in Eastern Europe or beyond, and like, yeah, this person's never been there before, they'll probably say no. And so as a result, multiple authentication factors does not mean multiple instances of the same authentication factor. I remember for a while, I think it was uh, USAA would say, give us your ID, that's something you know, and then give us your password, that's also something you know, and then answer one of these security questions is set up, like what's your dog's maiden name or whatever, and it's still something you know. That's not three-factor authentication. That's one factor three times. And so multi-factor authentication means pick at least two out of this list. Credit card fraud, huge amount, $16 billion a year in fraud. But a debit card, not as much. Why? Because a credit card, it just requires a number. You buy online, done. Or you swipe the card or put the chip in someplace, you know, just physically have the card. You're done. It's only one factor. But when you got to the ATM cards, it was two-factor, card and PIN. And of course, we went to chip and pin years ago in Europe to try to address that with a multi-factor authentication. So if somebody stole a credit card out of the grandfather's sock drawer and tried to go out and buy something with it, they needed to know the pin. In October of 2015, when the United States rolled out a requirement, and it's not the government, of course, this is a payment card industry, This is a, which, by the way, I'm going to be doing an episode soon on PCI DSS 4.0. It's just been released. Uh, it's not effective yet. But what we find out then is the requirement says, hey, instead of chip and pin, we'll do chip and signature which is why you have the uh, you put the chip in there. And then instead of having to put a pin, you just sign for it. The idea was, hey, it's a chip and nobody can duplicate the chip. Well, there's been some pretty good attacks. There's been some good cloning attacks on that. And uh, those have been demonstrated at DEF CON. I'm not going to get into those details because it's a little bit off subject. 
But the whole thing I'm trying to help you understand is having a single authentication factor is an invitation to disaster. You need MFA everywhere. Now, there is a model called the Consumer Authentication Strength Maturity Model. And version six highlights eight different levels of authentication, with one being the worst and eight being the most secure. So let's kind of walk through that model and get an idea for how we progress from low to high. Level one is a shared password. Now, some organizations, as I said, may share the same admin passwords for network devices, databases, Windows admin logins, uh, Azure domain, yeah. This becomes problematic because if one administrator leaves the company, now you got to reset all those passwords. You got to give everybody else the password instead of just dis- deactivating that account. And companies get complacent and then forget that former admins can sometimes come back and cause a major security incident. And if the shared password account does cause harm, how do you know which of one of the administrators who had an account access actually might have done the harm? Again, remember, passwords alone authenticate their credential, not the human. So we need better than a shared password. That's the lowest, that's the worst. Level two is a unique password. Well, now this solves the problem of who performed what type of activity, whether it's proper or malicious, because now each user, each person has a unique credential. And now binding the credential to the activity also binds the user to the activity. However, if the password is too short or too simple, it could be guessed or brute forced or somebody's shoulder surfs, as we saw before. And so at level two, yeah, you're not really there. Level three would be a quality password. Now, here we're using complex passwords or long passphrases to make it harder for the passwords to be guessed. Now, as I alluded to in the earlier math, length is better than complexity. The longer my passphrase is, the more likely I am. Microsoft now lets you go, I think, to either 127 or 255 characters. Now, that's kind of pushing it. But instead of having uppercase, lowercase number, special characters, why was that? Because that was the maximum number of combination you could squeeze into an eight-character field on a PDP-11. How about tell a little story? The little girl went to the store to buy some food for her cat. And you know what? It can all be lowercase. And it doesn't need a period at the end. And there's no numbers. And there's no special characters, but it's long enough that all the computers at NSA are not going to be able to stumble into that combination. It's like a chess game. After 10 or 12 moves, the number of possible positions are fantastically large and you get that with length. So a quality password, level three, is going to be better. Now notice that there's equivalencies. Like if you have nine numbers, lowercase, uppercase, and symbols, that's equal to about a 17-digit password. And again, you could just take a look and do the math. Take the number of characters and take the exponent of how many you're using. So I'm going to use uh, letters. Okay, 26. Or uppercase, lowercase, 52. Add numbers, 62. Add special characters, 96. Or whoever you want to get to. And then up it goes. Now, brute forcing can work fairly quickly with enough computing. And of course, if it's not a salted hash, then you can just run a attack against it using rainbow tables. Now, I know I didn't get into salt and maybe I'll save that for some episode. It's a little bit, if you know what it is, it's great. If not, essentially what you're doing is you combine a little bit of additional data into the input so that every single input is going to be different. So if I 
in hash the same value 10 times, I get the same value in hash 10 times. But if I throw in a salt, then I get a different hash coming out there. And now the attacker can't use a rainbow table because the rainbow table is made for all these combinations of, let's say, nine characters. Why do nine characters plus one, two, three? Now it's 12 characters. And I have to go ahead and I have to go find somebody to build me a rainbow table. Here's a couple of Bitcoin and create these huge tables. And they all end with one, two, three. Well, it turns out that now the next user has a salt of four, five, six. And I go back and make more rainbow tables with it. So they see salts defeat the rainbow tables. That's what they're there for and, and the like. And of course, you use a big, long, complex salt. Then the numbers go up geometrically and it's really, really tough. All right. So we got to get past this, this password stuff. Well, one more level of passwording, level four, is password manager. Now, something like a Bitwarden or a LastPass or 1Password, a user can easily create a 20-character password. They're complex, and they don't have to remember what they are. They're stored in a password vault of sorts. And what happens is all you have to do is remember the one master password, the key encrypting key, if you will, to access it. Now, that's something you need to remember. The little girl went to the store to buy some food for her cat. But every other place can populate hugely complex passwords that you're not going to remember. And you don't have to write them down. That's a great step forward. But the thing is, is that we kind of forget that the password reset questions are often the back door in. So you've got this super complex password. That's great. But then they say, okay, what was the name of your dog? What year did you graduate from high school? What is it? What is up on your Facebook page that they could figure out that you put in a reset? And they go, okay, you reset. So remember, the answers to those questions don't have to be real answers. You can have a 20-character complex answer to the name of your dog. All right. And now, because the system is filling in the password for you, because the user doesn't have to retype it, just on the long shot that there is a keylogger out there, you don't have it anymore. It's copy paste, just feeds it right in. All right, now we're getting into some good stuff. Level five. Level five would be the SMS-based two-factor authentication codes. Now we finally, finally, after four levels of just passwords, making a bigger, bigger, fancier, more complex, more root storing, we can do it with a second factor. And the user will register their phone number. And then what happens is you get a text, usually a six-digit code. I notice that Chase does eight-digit codes, which I like. And they can use it to log into. Now, yeah, the attacker might have stolen my password, but if they don't have my cell phone. They don't know the code, so they can't get in. Almost. Turns out that you can do kind of a SIM swapping attack, which is a social engineering attack on the help desk at the phone company. If they can call up the provider and convince them that they're you, and they said, hey, I got a new phone. I need to put a new SIM in there or whatever. Well, what's your password? I don't know. I can't remember it, but da, da, da. And there's a great thing that was done. I think it was at DEF CON a couple of years ago where one of the reporters just got his phone um, reset by a social engineer. She just got on the phone, played a little screaming baby in the background and just played a harried mother. Oh, I'm trying to, can you help me? Oh, I'm so sorry about the baby. And just got this person on the other end of the phone to kind of overlook all those security requirements and completely reset his stuff. All right. And so now what happens is that, and that was just resetting his password, but if you can do a SIM swap, then what happens is the messages go to another physical device. And those attacks were being used early on against people with Bitcoin wallets, particularly those with a lot of Bitcoin money in it, at which point then the phone company just redirected that SIM. And it might not have to require social engineering. It might be getting an agent into the help desk area with those access 
when you're talking a lot of money, there's a lot of things to be done. So SMS two-factor authentication code is only as good as the phone company's ability to resist it. So did you know that I think most major phone companies, you can put a password on your account, passphrase. I do that. So I call up and said, hi, I like to talk about my phone or what's your phone number? Okay, what's your pass? What's your special uh, passcode? And they're instructed if they can't answer that, then don't make any changes. Now, who knows? They could probably try to social engineer past that point, but an extra level of defense doesn't hurt. Now let's get to level six, app-based two-factor authentication. Now, since the attackers can outwilt with the cellular providers, now we can use a mobile app like Google Authenticator or Twilio's Authy. It generates a different six-digit code, usually every 30 seconds. And what happens is the algorithm is run on both the phone and the server, and you synchronize through a shared seed. That seed can be 128 bits, 256 bits, however complex you want, but it's usually presented as a QR code, or if they say, if you can't scan your QR code, enter in this blah, 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 blah. And this will stop nearly all attacks because if even if the attacker already knows your password, they have roughly a one in a million chance of getting the attack right. Well, the problem on that is what? In one case, depending upon whether you have blocking for simultaneous attempts, you can just try logging in with a million different MFA responses. If you have huge bandwidth, if you're kind of like Shmukan when they have their ticket sales and they can you know, have a bazillion connections at the same time, try a million different connections all at once. Now, unless your system times out after a certain number of unsuccessful attempts or you don't block simultaneous sessions, you've got a 100% chance of getting in past the MFA because you can do a million of these things and you've, you've gone through all the sample space. All right, so what else? Level seven is going to be app-based codeless two-factor authentication. Something kind of complex here, but let's think about it. Think about it like Microsoft Authenticator. A lot of us may have that. Instead of a six-digit code, attackers need the victim to press approve on the Authenticator app, just let them in. We've seen this recently with regards to some of the attacks that have been coming out where the attacker might get to the point where they go, hey, we've figured this out, we've got the password, but we can't get in. So what happens? Like the Solar Winds attack and some lapsus cyber group, what they do is they just bombard the real users with dozens of authentication requests. Approve, sign in. Deny or approve. Approve, sign in. Approve. Finally, like, okay, if I just click approve, it'll make it go away. Make sure you inform your users that if you get multiple approve, sign in prompts, particularly if you're not trying to sign on, you're under attack. And never click approve for somebody else or just holding the door open for the bad guy. That's a user education. And so what happens then is in that particular case, the user might just get fatigued into going along with it. And so it's an MFA fatigue attack. They just send victims an MFA over and over and over again until they just hit accept. And frankly, I think we know someone who will hit the approve button. They're probably the same people who click the phishing attack in the company's monthly phishing exercise. Now, Microsoft allows even more secure authentication because the authenticator allows organizations to show a map of where the device is logging in from, what application being used, required number matching. Uh, you can do geofencing. You can say, hey, I only want people logging in from these areas. Uh, now if a victim gets an MFA challenge, they can say, well, I'm not at this location. I'm not using this app. I don't know what the two-digit number is I need to provide to the MFA challenge. So then approval is kind of unlikely to happen. Now, it's a great way forward, but the weak point is it requires user education. Users, you have to install that on the user's device. 
And if it's a personal phone, it could be kind of challenging in locations like well, Germany where strong data privacy laws exist. At the very top of this hierarchy is level eight, passwordless. You might've heard of like passwordless security. What is it? You combine your password with a physical token, such as a YubiKey. Now, the attacker doesn't have the ability to press your YubiKey remotely, so the attack will fail. If you have that, now it's a physical token. You stick it in there, and it's got its encryption in there, and it works. Now, if there's ever a hardware compromise or somehow somebody breaks YubiKey encryption, uh, then there could be additional attacks because, well, it's going to be profitable. Now, with all these eight levels of consumer authentication, there are ways attackers will try to go around them. Now, certainly multi-factor authentication is a lot better than shared passwords, so please adopt it as an absolute minimum. Every user can do it. I insisted on it. We had a situation where one of our uh, external folks who is not on managed devices, but they still cooperate, they got fished somewhere along the line, and then it was my leverage, so to speak, to be able to convince senior management to make all of these external folks require MFA. It's not that bad. You get used to it. You do it already for your bank. Why not do it to get into your accounts? And we had very little pushback. And now what we want to do is like the Microsoft conditional access. You can say, hey, is it from a registered device? It's got to be managed by Microsoft Intune. If it's not a registered device, we block it. Here's an IP address. It's coming from an overseas country. We've geofenced it because we don't have users there. So we block that. Occasionally, I'll get people who will travel. And if they don't let me know in advance and they can't get in, I get this phone call like, hey, I can't get in. It says, where are you? And they're going to Timbuktu. It's like, well, why didn't you tell me you were going there? I could have opened it. Hold on. We'll, we'll fix that. And that actually does work because I know I know my users and I can recognize voices. And you know, you know, hopefully nobody has a gun to their head at the point that they're asking for that. Now, there's a lot of power here. There's a lot of things we can do more, but essentially I've tried to give you all the working parts to really understand the complexities of how to do authentication right. We've talked about why do we need passwords, ways consumers log in and authenticate, how bad actors attack their passwords, and the future of passwords with conditional access policies and the like. Hopefully you've enjoyed this. If you have questions or things like that, let us know. Give us a, a note at CISOTradecraft.com or, or email me at gmark at CISOTradecraft.com. If you've got show ideas, if you've got someone you'd like to recommend to be on the show, I've had a couple of interviews lately and I think they've gone really well, but other topics as well, because we want to be your go-to resource for everything with regard to your CISO Tradecraft. So please share us with your coworkers, follow us on LinkedIn, Give us a rating up there on Apple or whatever podcast you're doing so we're able to go ahead and boost our, our numbers so more people can find it and we can help improve cybersecurity throughout the world. Anyway, until next time, this is G. Mark Hardy, your host. Thank you for listening. and Stay safe.